0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Easton. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Johnny Hates Jazz because I spoke to their songwriter, vocalist and keyboard player, the one and only Clark Datchler. To find out more about life, love and poetry. So, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was wait for it, dear listener. Yes early musical influences. But I would just been talking to Clark about his father, who was also a singer and saxophonist in various bands, including Stargazers, and the polka dots so with that conversation i know it was a winner really clark responds about his uh, musical background and father clark take it away
1: well i don't know it, it, in a way in a way not my father passed away in 98 but he he was a uh, a member of a couple of very successful bands in the 50s um the stargazers and the polka dots and the stargazers were actually the first British band to have a number one on the UK chart. All the other artists had been um, from the US until that point. So um, by the time I came along, same year as you, David, 64, um, the Beatles had started to put jazz out of business. And um, so as I grew up, um, I was really witnessing my dad's era of music coming to an end. Right. That was that was actually very difficult in some ways. I loved the Beatles. I loved the Kinks. I loved the Moody Blues. Um, I loved the Isleys. I loved Stevie Wonder. You know, there was a lot of things I loved that were happening in the sixties. But I was also aware that it was very difficult for my dad. So, um, what that really gave me, though, was that I I grew up in a house that was very musically eclectic. Eclectic. I grew up listening to Count Basie, Duke Ellington. Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald. My dad worked with many of those people, uh, with Sinatra, worked with the Beatles, actually, sang on Am the Wars. Blimey. Um, so I, I, I heard all of that. I heard the music of my older brothers. You know, it's a typical story of all of us. How did we hear music? It was radio and it was our family and friends. Um, their record collection is what we listen to. So I, my brothers went to soul music and reggae so i was exposed to that and i was the rocker i was into you know um rainbow and uh, you know black sabbath and eventually the, the pistols and and so all of those things went into the mix yeah. so it's i mean absolutely ironic that i ended up becoming part of a band called johnny hates jazz my dad did not speak to me for a month when i told him that was the name of the band but i tell you what he was my greatest supporter one thing that musicians do at the end of the day regarding their own tribalism regarding their own genre is that really we we understand each other's struggle and we want each other to do well and yes. that's really the case with my dad
0: I could I could imagine he must have um, must have taken a bit of a double take on that one because I, I got an old brother who was seven years older and he was that generation who loved prog rock so it was you know yes Genesis Wishbone Ash Barkley James Harvest but he did have Black Sabbath Deep Purple and then Richie Blackmore's Rainbow so you know I kind of grew up with that kind of moment and I was very young I'd sneak into his room play the records when he told me not to then quickly sneak out when he was coming back again so I had to do that for a few years but then I got to that point I kind of completely missed punk I came from the countryside we you know a working class background we didn't punk never got not to not to those kind of rural areas so it was kind of much later so but you sounded like you were more aware of what was going on in 77, 78 time than probably a lot of teenagers at that stage.
1: I think that, um, you know, the the punk thing was really interesting. I, I, as I said before, it was very eclectic. I just just knew that if I liked something, if I thought it was a good song, that was, I didn't care what the genre was. So um, when I first heard um, Anarchy in the UK, I just thought, and actually God Save the Queen as well, I just thought, well, they are great songs. I think they're great songs. This idea that, you know, the punk musicians couldn't play their instruments, um, which was what was going around at the time. Well, I was in a band with Glenn Matlock, you know, who was the the founder of Sex Pistol. Mm. And Glenn was a really good musician. They were all really good musicians. You mentioned James Stevenson recently, um, earlier, who I was in the same band with, in, with Glenn, and James was in Chelsea and Generation X, James is a great musician. You know, they knew what they were doing. And 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 I think I could hear that. Um, and I didn't see it. I know they saw it as opposed to a lot of the prog rock of the time, I didn't. I just saw it as, you know, as great music. Some of it was great, some of it was not, but. Some of the pistol stuff was really excellent, Yes.
0: And did you, I mean, during the sort of, you know, 79, Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher gets into power, then we have the sort of Falkland crisis war, then we have, you know, Greenham Common, the miners' strike, and... Um, I mean, the, politically, everything is going sort of pretty weird. And and sort of a lot of the bands I kind of interviewed, they spent that kind of late teen period um, kind of on, on that sort of, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it, it's quite quite common, you know, being unemployed, you know, clock, jo- claiming Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance schemes, doing all that kind of thing, being their indie band. And, and the thing about the 80s, and I guess it's slightly the 70s as well, there were the gatekeepers, weren't there? You know, we had the three, you know, weekly music papers that had huge circulations, John Peel, Janice Long, Kid Jensen, you know, every little city and town in the UK, which is a tiny place, has a kind of alternative night and a venue. I mean, did you, at that stage in the early 80s, did you know was were you starting to think music was going to be your kind of career so to speak
1: oh i thought my i thought music was going to be my career in in 72. <laughs> 1972 i wrote in my diary as we did back then or i, I did and it's of a weird thing to do even back in 1972 just saying one day i'm going to be a successful professional musician like my dad that's who i wanted to emulate him so by the time the early 80s came along um I had my first single released in 81 on an um, independent soul label in London called Blue Ink Records. And, um, and after that, I, um, I started to work closely with one of the founders of Visage, Rusty Egan, and one of the members of the Rich Kids. Um, and Rusty uh, introduced me to electronic music, And I was a I was a bit of a soul boy and. And really. um, uh, Understood that the fusion of of a kind of a soul sensibility, which a lot of bands in the 80s will tell you they had. With electronica was kind of the foundation of 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 what happened. Um, I remember seeing the Thompson Twins performing Love on Your Side live. For the first time, and I was just that was actually, you know, that was the record that did it for me. Right. This idea of, wow, you could do, you can create a kind of a soulful record that doesn't sound like soul at all. It just sounds like, it doesn't sound like craft work either, that people bang on about was so influential. I wasn't influenced by craftwork at one moment. I was influenced by Bowie. Um, I was influenced by Yellow Magic Orchestra, Richie Sakamoto. Yes. Um, I was influenced by... Early Thompson Twins, or that you know, when they became the, the trio, not the Thompson Twins before then. And I was influenced by people I've mentioned before, you know, whether that's the Moody Blues or Steely Dan or whoever it was. Um, so I, I think that all I knew is that um, I was performing on the, you know, the kind of the, in some ways, the neuromantic romantic club scene at that time as a very young lad, very inexperienced. So was Alice it, was, was it the
0: case kind. that you did you veer towards the, the the kind of blitz kids and the face kind of vibe of of, yeah. of that period well that was your yeah. yes i was so in, i would have been so intimidated <laughs> i wouldn't have gone in at all i was very geeky oh
1: i was intimidated believe me but but i it, it's because <laughs> i knew a couple people in that world that gave me the bottle to do it
0: right God, that's impressive. So you wrote your you wrote this single. You 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 fooled him once again, which got some. So this this featured Juliet Roberts, who was on in Working Week, didn't didn't you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Juliet was actually on the same label as me, uh, Blue Ink Record or Bluebird, as they were also known. And um, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a suggestion that was made. The idea of having a kind of a guest vocalist on there. I knew what Julie's voice was like. I was. You know, the, the, the early British jazz funk scene was something that I was also very into. So, interestingly, Level 42, a very early Level 42. Um, uh Working Week, Lynx, which was David Grant's Oh, band. yes, the fantastic yeah. links. God, they were good. Yeah, absolutely. Little... Um, Freeze, you know, all this kind of thing. I like that because it was, you know, the, the cool thing about British music back then, whether it was, you know new romantic stuff or indie stuff or the jazz funk movement was that it, it was a bit rough around the edges. It wasn't as polished as in the US. And I liked that. I liked that. It gave it something very visceral and tangible and, and honest. So, yes. um, yeah, I, so the, anyway, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, you know, when Juliet said she would, she would appear as a guest vocalist alongside me as a vocalist, I was, you know, I was really, really pleased.
0: And did and did the sort of moment when S- S- Sade suddenly brought out, you know, Diamond Life, did that was that kind of a bit of a game changer, that kind of production and sound and and vibe? Because obviously Working Week, and there was another band, wasn't there? Was it Blue Rhonda Ella Turk, who was sort yeah. of a bit of a funk band as well? And somebody who was in the young marble giants, who I think also were had a sort of a, a sort of a bit of a soul, uh, there was a bit of a soul scene, wasn't there, at that point as well? I suppose you had a bit of soul jazz with everything but the girl that was kind of acoustic, though. But yes, when when Sharday came along and we had um the great producer who I now can't remember his Robin name, Miller. that's Robin the Miller. one, yes, I know, I should know. I did interview him a few about a year ago, <laughs> yeah. So, did, did that? Sort of give you another kind of moment of reflection and thinking, "Oh, okay, this is interesting, plus it sold millions of copies
1: no, interestingly, no, it didn't and and weirdly, david, I'd made a record with Robin um just a few years ago, cover of uh, famous tambourine man, and, and he 's a fantastic fella and a great producer, but no, that didn 't happen. I think really what I was aware of was there was a very kind of smooth you know, lounge version of jazz funk that was emerging. It was very polished, and that wasn't really where my heart was at. Um, I was I was more influenced by people like Talk Talk, Tears of Fears, early Tears of Fears, and and so I was kind of going more in the in the electronic realm. Yes, really well written songs, but 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 um, you know, electronic production. So I, in some ways, you would think from what I've just said that I would have gone down that route of every, uh, everything but The Girl and Sade, but I didn't. It kind of all felt a bit, um, uh, you know what it was, David? It was this. Uh, I grew up listening to music that often was very socially conscious. And that was deeply meaningful to me. To me, that is music. It's not just about entertainment. One of my favorite records was the Isley Brothers and Harvest for the World. Yes. Um, Stevie Wonder in the 70s was just second to none, you know, in terms of social commentary and the electronic movement of the 80s kind of carried that forward. You know, they were, whereas I don't think the jazz funk thing did. I mean, level 42 are an interesting um, exception because and having just toured with them, listen to the lyrics more carefully. And I always liked Level 42. They're really clever lyrics. And they made some really good observations about the world. But in general, that's not what really happened with that realm of music. So I kind of, I really, you know, pinned my flag to the electronic mast. And, and, and that was the main reason. Yes. I mean, about two tribes. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I mean, you can't get more different lyrically than Relax. I thought it was a great statement, and and there were a lot of those statements in the eighties, as they were in the seventies and the sixties, and, and there was no fanfare about that. It's just that's just what you did, you know. You wrote about love one minute, and you wrote about the state of the world the next. It was not unusual. It was now it's become deeply unusual. It's a, it's it's an odd thing, you know. It, it uh, so anyway, that's really my way of saying that's why I. I went in a certain direction musically.
0: Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, yes, because obviously as, as the 80s got kind of into a certain groove, there was this kind of, the, the rise of the kind of, I suppose it was the Red Wedge movement that started to really sort of happen and there was a, a huge political kind of, I suppose, things did, you know, apart from musically being quite tribal, there was the sense of like, who who does... Who does that band vote? Vote literally vote for on you know in the ballot box, and that kind of obviously killed one or two people's careers who said the wrong thing at the wrong time. It's like I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I think your fan base has just dwindled, and um, they won't like you for another twenty years. Anyway, look, so that that was it. But then when you when you joined, yeah, so there was yeah, so that I suppose politics. You couldn't get away from politics then as the eighties progressed because it became you know it it was just so everything got very touchy didn't it and it's probably like that in places in america today you know it's um it's just becomes quite a tricky subject to bring up or oh, and the uk as well really <laughs> god it's
1: uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the irony though i would i would counter is that um i think that we as musicians back then and i don't mean this to sound like a oh, we it, it, the old days were were better in every way it's not true at, at all of course But um, I do think that we made it our goal to speak to the world. You know, one thing I loved about Stevie Wonder, you know, there I was, you know, white middle class kid growing up in the home counties. And Stevie Wonder spoke to me. He didn't just sing to one group of people, he sang to humanity. My my favorite record sing to humanity, and that's really what, what I thought was important. I didn't really want to be there as some kind of musical representative of the Labour Party. We're certainly not fucking Conservatives. Um, but but um, I, And I still think that's important. I mean, I think as, as we're facing the environmental catastrophe that we are and we have been for many years now, it's even more important that we, we stop being provincial. Um, about how we address um, these subjects in our songwriting, you know, we we have to be communicators to and for the world.
0: Yes, well, I, yes, I mean it, it does. It, I, I suppose I can remember a lot of those '60s documentaries where people get very animated, thinking, you know, music. It was so important to have this cultural, political, social revolution, and and I think at the time those musicians, I remember sort of really feeling like they they meant it and and really believed it and found the sort of more bubble gum pop of the 60s, kind of like, what are you doing? You're just writing silly little songs. You know, they were great in 1965, but look, you know, we've had 67, 68, the Summer of Love. Now we've got, you know, students being shot, you know, in America, we've got, you know, the Vietnam War. You can't just keep singing little songs about, you know, sugar and such like, I think... <laughs> Something like that anyway. So there you go. But look, with your time in Johnny H. Jazz, then the, what was that kind of phase one? Was that a, when you, you know, because no one who starts playing music knows it's going to really explode, but obviously occasionally it does. Did you, what was the ride like with you, with, the, with that kind of period in the sort of, late eight, sort of mid to late 80s?
1: Well, I think that... Um what was an odd thing back then is the power of the critics. Music critics had an awful lot of influence back then. And in the same way that the the mainstream media does now, actually, not the mainstream media, online media does as well. And so they kind of defined how the public were going to see you. And very early on, something kind of came out where we were manufactured. There was this, you know, terrible concept which this is actually nearly everything's manufactured these days as far as i'm concerned but back then it was like it was um you know they must be manufactured because i was i was kind of described in the press as a you know professional singer songwriter one of our members who uh, calvin who's no longer in the band was an a and r man and and um mike who is my colleague in johnny hates jazz still to this day was um chief engineer at rack studios well that's just stuff you put down in your press release to have something to say instead of just say well i play keyboards he plays drums and he plays bass um and we were not manufactured at all The, the the thing is is that we you know i wrote the songs the other guys produced the records and we did everything amongst ourselves and when we went on the road to promote, literally, we would turn the light off in the studio, lock the door. No, no, other, no other work got done until we got back and we could continue again. So, um, it was a. In some ways, it was an odd thing. This is why I, I said uh, to you earlier, David, that um, you know, perception is everything, and especially back then, um, we were very much embraced by the world very quickly. Um, but we definitely had our detractors as well. And I let let our detractors get to me. You know, I, I took it very personally that there were certain um, critics who just didn't get us at all. I mean, ironically, the best review we ever had was in NME. So it, it makes me sound like I've got some kind of chip on my shoulder about, you know, the serious music press. I don't, uh, you know, NME were really cool with us. Um, but, it was, a, it was an odd situation to be in because we were very sincere in our desire to set the bar high and me to write as, as good a songs as I could and the other guys to be as, as good of producers as they could be. And I do think we actually did hit a certain mark, which is given the, the music longevity. Um, so it was, a, it was a lovely experience. It was an experience that the the three of us had worked very hard for over many years to achieve, so we kind of were ready for it in a way um, but i didn't realize how personally affected I was going to be by the naysayers, and I really was i wasn't thick skinned enough
0: yes that's that, that, is, that is terrible isn't it i did did this interview with this one guy he was in one of those new york bands he, i think he, he got to a point where he had a gun in his mouth and someone said don't shoot yourself for that review christ it's not worth it and it's oh like, my God. God, it was it was kind of he he was quite an intense person but i think it did you know it does really get to people be, because i think you just feel so hurt and Like, God, you know, I'm just making a record. You don't have to be quite so savage. But I do know, because I do listen to this other podcast called um, The Rock's Back Pages with Barney Hopkins, Hoskins and um, various other people. Mark Pringle, who was in one of those soul bands who went into being in people, the woman who was in it. I think the band was called Hot House. I think they had one album on deconstruction record but I think you know they they often talk and sometimes feel a bit embarrassed by their own some of the things they probably write themselves because I think it was just you know you had a circulation of 100,000 copies a week didn't you those papers so you know, they had to create things and and sort of pretend there was a scene when there's no scene. So, band suddenly went. I'm suddenly in this scene. I'm not sure if I'm I should be in this scene. You know what What are you doing? And then being built up and then being murdered. You know, at the same time, it's it must have been horrendous. You know, And well, the, we,
1: the odd thing is, uh, David. I I don't mean to sound like you know poor me. You know, I I had such a terrible time when we were we were doing so well. The, the flip side of it. And this is why I didn't quite understand this this minority, and very small minority of of critics who who made themselves sound and feel very loud. Is that you know Britain was dominating the world musically back then. There's no question. It was our second biggest export industry. And yes, the U.S. you know still had a major part to play, but. Um, it, it was the second British invasion, you know, as, as we knew it back then. And you kind of would have thought that we'd all feel positive about that. We'd feel, you know what, good on us all yes. for achieving that. And um, uh, because I don't think we've seen anything like that since then. We've seen some really big British artists, but not a wave, and certainly not a cultural wave. Yes. Um, so i you know it was amazing to be part of that and and it was very tangible you knew you were part of something i mean when we started doing well in the states you know the states was very important to us back then but obviously not only the states but it was really interesting to see how the rest of the world related to britain at that time and we were not we were seen as you know extremely broad-minded and and that 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 thing I touched on earlier about speaking to the world. Um, You know, I I think we really did, even if some of it was not the deepest that it it could have been. Um, In some ways you needed both. Yes. You needed some deep records. You needed some ones that were, you know, a a, a little more frivolous. And I wasn't a great fan of the frivolous stuff, but, you know, I guess in, in the scheme, in the grand scheme of things, it did balance things out
0: yeah because one thing I did well I've also noticed because because um you know like I said you know I had to confess I was a bit of an indie pop kid so you know and and you know indie pop for me that period though one could talk about whether it's the record label is it this or a style but you know between 83 to 87 you know the smiths had this kind of quite a dominant moment and then when they finished they felt like that party had slightly f- was over and then the next wave of 16 to 18 year old kids start coming along and they kind of as you probably can imagine you know want their own people and then there was this sort of this change where there was the ecstasy there was the dance scene with you know people like happy mondays and primal scream and the orb and then in america we had that whole 4ad things with like the Pixies and Throw Muses and then this Seattle grunge scene so you know when you came out of you know a band that had been kind of so successful and then sort of find yourself in a you know on you know as a solo artist in a new decade I just wondered how you were thinking creatively about what you were going to do when you go, hello, the 90s. I'm here, and oh my god, what's happening now? It's all <laughs> it feels a long time from 10 years when you started in 1980 with you know those kind of early bands. I just wondered what it was like you, you know, sort of starting again in a new world.
1: Yeah, well, it interestingly, um, the positive side of that change for me was that it made me reevaluate my own life and um you know because it, the the 90s was not a welcoming decade for artists who had arisen in the 80s and in many ways you would I've heard other artists say this, you were treated pretty much as a criminal i used to not tell people i'd been enjoying h jazz it was only in the 2000s that that started to change when the decade got reevaluated and suddenly people wanted to know that part of my history and um no in the 90s you kept your head down. <laughs> um and it was it was an odd thing because um uh like I say, one positive aspect of it was that it it made me look for other reasons to be in music because it wasn't a time where it was going to be very easy to be successful as a former 80s star. <laughs> so I I um I moved out, I'd already moved to Amsterdam. Um did some work with various people, including Rupert Hine, and, and then moved to Bath and based myself at, myself at Real World Studios um, and immersed myself really in uh, what Peter Gabriel was doing in terms of bringing world instruments and world music more to the fore. And, um, and that was at a similar time that I started to become involved in the, in the environmental movement. So I wanted to combine all those elements um, and make the music that was important for me to make yes. um, at that time. Yeah. Um, but I, I tell you what I will say, David, and I think this is a, I haven't said this very often to people, but um, we have to remember that it was also the decade, the kicking off of the nineties was the decade when the independent, the British independent music industry started to get sold off as the media industry did in general. And as an example, Virgin got sold to EMI, EMI was run into the ground and got sold in bits and pieces to Universal. And our greatest British record label doesn't even exist anymore. That's what happened in the 90s. I remember going into EMI in its in its death throes with a um a record I'd made with Rupert Hine, as I mentioned. And um I played it to an A&R man I'd never met before. You know, I was a, an artist they inherited from Virgin. You know, he made little comment, but on his desk was this record. And on the cover were five guys jumping up in the air, kicking their feet out, looking very excited. And the, t- album, the album title was "Let uh, Take That and Party. And I looked at it and he obviously could see there was a look on my face of somewhat consternation. And, and he said, uh, see what that is? I said, what? He said, that's the future. And I thought to myself, I'm fucked. <laughs> if that's the future, I'm fucked. So I kind of just withdrew. I just thought, I can't fight this. You know, I've got to do my own thing. And, and, and it was, a, in, in many ways, the 90s was the most powerful time for me as, a, as an individual. Um, I, I grew the most then. I, I made music, which is actually coming out very soon, on an album, which um, uh, you know I'm still very proud of. Uh, you know, It was a, a lot of focus on the environment and, and world instrumentation. I taught myself to play the bazooki, the Irish bazooki. I've got four of them over there. Um, so I was, it was a very, really lovely experimental time. So I don't think back on the 90s with any kind of sense of grudge at all. Yes. Um I thought it was, a, it was, for me personally, it was a time of great exploration. And so I have very fond memories of it. So
0: during, so during that period, because um, I suppose I have to confess, in the sort of 80s and 90s, I did sort of hang out with quite a lot of sort of new agey hippie types and got into a lot of that kind of world that we just, I mean, talk about sort of a spiritual appropriation. It was just like a free form, really. I mean, you know, I have to confess. I mean, you know, I was, I was quite young, so I was just kind of kind of going, oh, this is interesting. We're doing a sweat lodge, or we're going to walk ley lines, or we're going to do some spiritual energy thing. Um, and then there was the five rhythms with Gabrielle Roth, and there was stuff going on at Findhorn. Did you also, after... The sort of dealing with the 80s did you also go through kind of a period of just being fascinated and intrigued with lots of other aspects to to life and and also kind of I suppose the sensitivity in the music that was kind of with some of the, those kind of um, elements and scenes
1: yeah totally I recognize every single one of those <laughs> references you mentioned David look the, the thing for me was that um I, as the, as environmental awareness grew, which it really did in the, in the late eighties and, and the rise of the green party and, and um, our growing awareness of what we were doing to the planet, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of us did is say, why are we doing this to ourselves? So, and that's a spiritual question. It's got something to do with the human psyche. Mm. Um, and the thing about growing up in a place like Britain is that we are led to believe that we are rooted in the story of monarchy. Our history is checkered with the lives and deaths of various monarchs from various families, the bloody lives and bloody deaths of these people. And and yet, for example, in the Native American world, there, even though they were absolutely you know, practically decimated um, through colonization and then uh, at the hands of the US government, um, there were still strands of information connecting them to their own philosophical outlook on the world and life and death, which survived and have survived. But that didn't happen here in Britain. The Celtic world, which was our world, was wiped out, wiped off the face of the earth. And what people started to do over here was try and reconstruct it mm-hmm. by using elements of the Native American world of the Maori world of the Aboriginal world, the Australian aboriginal world, um you know the 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 um the Samis in finland and um and on and on and that is what led to I think this kind of mishmash of new ageism in a place like like Britain because we were told that really we didn't have any roots. I mean, especially if you're English, because you're not even Celtic, apparently. You're Anglo-Saxon. And we don't even know what that is. I mean, it infers, basically, we have come from Germany, which is fine, because, you know, they were Celts as well. It's a pretty sad and odd thing that we experience. And and, and I felt this very much as a young English person, this disconnect from our own land, because our history is so mistaught. I'm not talking about the history of, for example, you know, the World Wars or the English Civil War, some of these, you know, fundamentally important aspects of our experiences as a people. Mm. But I do think that the idea that we actually had an ancient past that's rooted to all these ancient monuments that survive in England in greater numbers than most other places in Europe is quizzical. So I was one of those people that just started to search, and that was to say, who am I and where do I come from? And the irony for me, David, I don't know if you found this, is that actually, although now there's a lot of talk about cultural appropriation, the fact is is that a lot of these ancient ways of perceiving the world are very similar. And what did survive of the Celtic world seems to be a mirror. Of what of certain things that survived in the Native American world, the Mayan world, like I said, the Maori world, and that's fascinating um, and so you know yeah we I was part of that <laughs> your original question david um, yeah well I I,
0: I, I I think in a way when when one starts to look at that kind of a, a certain spiritual um i don't know some spiritual answers or some spiritual guidance it's guidance as it god you know how do i act now in life at this time or what's the best way to be you know if you're interested in wanting to be the best you can you know it's, sometimes it's difficult because you go oh here's the church and here's the bible and you think right that's a bit tricky I'm not quite getting that so can we can i kind of find something else and i think that's where those kind of other ways of being Uh, you, you know I just feels a little bit more accessible which were probably there before the you know the church got sort of built on top of these kind of sacred sites and you know you thought oh yes the winter solstice oh we've got Christmas day how amazing how did that happen you know it's like okay I think I think you've just kind of blotted out some some things that were underneath the surface which is probably where a lot of new age people are looking for and looking at stone circles and and perhaps ley lines, who knows, but it's a nice idea, I like them, so I'm going to stick with them for the moment, you know, and obviously, you know, we were doing, we, we you know, in this country, we were doing things, and in, in America, you know, the 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 sort of the original people doing their thing, and it was probably very similar, because we were probably all calling in and out of, I don't know, yurts, teepees, you know, benders, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, but we were sort of pretty much, you know, in the same ballpark, apart from Egypt, who just had a whole different world, <laughs> they'd got quite carried away haven't they so i don't know if you've ever been to egypt you think my goodness how did you would do you we were just in a ditch you were doing this this is amazing so <laughs> absolutely.
1: <laughs> absolutely There, there's a question isn't there absolutely and and the mayan world as well which is yes absolutely Oh, we yeah. were
0: we were probably good on sticks and stones but phew, god we could have never done that but then as as the then we did the '90s. I mean because obviously you're still creating lots of music and and then your time comes back with you know the band how did you have a, a kind of a, an awakening moment for this to happen
1: yeah in the two, early 2000s I was living in the US I was actually living in the high mountain desert of Arizona, and I built a solar powered studio and home. And I was recording an album there um, called Tomorrow, which had a very environmental focus. Um, And that 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 album actually is part of an album that's coming out next year called Journey Songs Two. Journey Songs is a live stream that I have done this year um, for about six months, which explores the music that I've made over the years. And it's coming back in um, uh, in spring 2022. Um, So. I was living in uh, Arizona. I made this album. I was I was very separate from how the world had changed musically, especially, but also technologically to a degree um, in terms of, you know, the rise of. or, Or rather the the demise of the sale of physical records, yes. CD. So I kind of ran into this um, when I appeared with this new album tomorrow, ready to, you know, share with the world my thoughts about what we were doing to the planet. And somebody had to explain to me what my space was. I didn't know I was living in the high mountain desert of the southwest of the US. It wasn't something that I'd really paid attention to. And when I realized that the record industry that I knew <clears throat> was gone, and my space, which is now ancient history, of course, was the thin end of the wedge of what was to come, um, I started to realize that um, I was going to have to approach this differently. And so the uh, this was also at a time when the eighties was being re-evaluated and i'd been asked if i would rejoin johnny hates jazz for some of the eighties festivals that were beginning to happen at that time and i didn't want to do that it wasn't my world at all um but eventually i met with the guys and decided that we could work together again if we were going to focus on making some new music and um and that's what we did. That was my doorway back into it. Could I bring what I was important to me about what I'd done as a solo artist into Johnny Hates Jazz? And I was able to. We did an album called Magnetized, myself and Mike, who I mentioned before. And Magnetized had some really interesting statements in it lyrically, and it was still very much a Johnny Hates Jazz album of the time. This came out in
0: 2013. Yes. Um, so- so on that on that front, because I was listening to it, you've got a track called "You Belong to You." I mean, because um, it sounds it sounds like quite a sort of because the the last album which you brought out last year is is kind of a very uplifting. I'm sure everyone says the same, you know, kind of like a lot of positive statements. This one seems a bit more of a on the purse, you know. The personal, emotional front—you know—it seems to be much more focused on that side. And I did sort of listening, and, and that song slightly jumped out at me, and I went, oh, I "Wonder what who that's about."
1: Did was there a you know a particular story behind that track? So the the song's about me singing to a woman that if we're going to you know have a relationship, I want you to remember that you belong to you. You are still. Your life belongs to you. Us being together or getting engaged or getting married, there's you know, I, I was I was bouncing off the notion that is still prevalent amongst certain groups of peoples, certain cultures, certain religions, that women are, you know, chattel property of a man. Yes. Uh, I find that so utterly abhorrent. And if there's one group of people that have been victimized throughout the ages, it's been women. And that doesn't mean that every single one of them is an angel. <laughs> we all have our foibles, but but what I mean is that um I there were a lot of songs around that kind of stated that you're mine. You know, you baby, you're mine. Yes. Lots of them, too many of them. And I just got sick of it and I wanted to write a song that was really in support of women. I've got a daughter, you know, I just wanted to say. I want you to know that, you know, you are your own person and whether you're with me or not will not change that. Um, and I still love you, and I hope you'll still love me. But that that was the statement of that. It actually wasn't about anyone in particular. It, I didn't I didn't feel the need to sing it to anyone in particular. It was just to, you know, um women of the world. Uh, and and I've had several women come up to me saying how important that song has been for them. Yes. Because um, that's um and, It was a rock track as well, you know, and that was a kind of a nice, a nice thing to do to kind of make it clear that you know that's part of my DNA as well. It's part of Mike's DNA too.
0: Yes, and as with with all these kind of interesting things that happen, and I had the same, well, vaguely something similar. I think you also had a health issue, didn't you, which is quite frightening, which often throws a complete curveball to ones. It discombobulates us, doesn't it? So, did you? was that a bolt out of the blue?
1: Yeah, really was. Well, we were self-releasing at the time. This is, <laughs> and back to the wor- how the world has changed. And we got to remember this was, you know, Spotify was um, in its infancy then. Um, so the whole streaming world was was really not fully formed. Um, so we were self-releasing. I was kind of the back room of the label. And. You know, in my determination to try and get this out into the world and it was working, you know, we we were on the radio 2 a list for a long time with the the single magnetized. Um, Things were happening, things were going somewhere. And we hadn't released the second single. We were talking about it, what it was going to be. And I was walking on Hampstead Heath with my kids. I've got a son and a daughter. And I suddenly collapsed and I didn't know what was going on. I'd never had those kind of health issues before. And I was, you know, close to passing out. I didn't know what was happening. And, and eventually, um, you know, an ambulance was called, I was rushed to the hospital and it was discovered that I had something called the GIST, a gastrointestinal stromal tumor. So it's a it's a malignant tumour that is lodged in the stomach wall. It's not stomach cancer, um, but it is a form of cancer. And um, the surgeon who eventually operated on me had to hope that he caught it early enough to remove it. And miraculously, he did. But of course, in that period of time of collapsing to actually having the operation to you know quite a bit of time and and um uh i was really thinking long and hard about uh what i was going to do with my life when i pulled through because i was convinced i was going to pull through but of course there was a small chance that i wouldn't
0: mm. jesus christ that's so scary, isn't it? Blimey, that's kind of... But boring. I did pull through,
1: and you know, it's one of those great moments, which I know we've heard a lot of over the past couple of years, but, you know, my goodness, thank, thank heavens for the NHS. When, when their back's against the wall, they, you know, they go for it, and they did with me, they, they got me on my feet really
0: quickly extraordinary really jesus Christ. yes no blind me. we we just all we all just have to hug each other well i suppose in a socially distanced way but oh um, god so tricky isn't it so wide awake so yes i know everyone's going to say the same aren't they it's got it's quite a different vibe isn't it well not different vibe but again you know it's just optimism in in bucketfuls so when did you start kind of record or writing it and thinking yes i'm i've i'm sort of next phase now let's get going i'm I'm sort of feeling better
1: there's a song on wide awake called spirit of love which i had i was tinkering with you know a couple of years after we did magnified and there was this this sense that you know i'd reached a point where maybe me and mike should just make a record that where we allow some of our influences our joint influences as kids to play their part in whatever we did next. And we both were, you know, where me and Mike meet musically is people like the Isleys and Dow Hall and John Oates and, and, um, you know, the Doobie Brothers, Stevie Wonder, that kind of thing. Um, And so really it was the messages in those records from those artists that also had their influence on the lyrical uh content of the wide awake album but i think actually the interesting thing is is that you know a lot of people during the pandemic were saying and you still hear them to this day say i decided to make an album that was just you know positivity you know because that's what the world needs right now i didn't really go into it thinking what the world needs right now is positivity um it, i just thought that um i wanted to deal with certain subjects and because of this kind of soulful aspect of the album it naturally happened the best song on the album is the title track wide awake to me and wide awake is a serious subject because it's really looking at the fact that we spend so much time in the digital domain now social media streaming etc that i think we i think we have lost touch with the reality of mother nature you know it and i think this is having very serious consequences and i i'm no different to anyone else in that respect i wrote the song for me to tell myself to stay wide awake Mm. no matter how much time i spent in this virtual existence Um, because we're losing the planet we're losing the planet's ability to sustain human life so they're very serious subjects on this album but um, the music is, like I say, because of that kind of R and B infusion quite uplifting.
0: So yes. Well it, well it's kind of it is interesting because um, I think we we all feel a bit guilty of our own sort of time we spend in front of the computer. And I think that's why it's quite nice to, you know, do those kind of things outside round a fire, you know, just under the stars, just to sort of kind of remind oneself on a constant level. And I think that's why going back to those kind of more pagan moments where you acknowledge you know the solstice the equinox you know the you know bell team you know um you know, all those kind of different periods of the of the time when you think, oh, it's equal day and night, now it's more day and more, night, less night, you know, et cetera. So, you know, it, it it is kind of important. And I do think that, you know, looking at the stars going, my God, those stars have been there for thousands, millions of years. There's light from those planets that the planets might have even died. Who knows? You know, but it does bring you back to something a bit more fundamental. And I think, you know, looking at flames at night can just be quite, you know, so transcendental. And so meditative, you know, and I th- I think, yes, moments just to remind oneself the importance of that very simple thing is just probably the most important thing we can ever do, really, because, you know, trying to sort of not watch the news every five minutes is, is quite essential for one's soul and growth, really. Otherwise, you're just paralyzed with kind of hesitation and sort of just being boggled with, you know, silly kind of um,
1: news, really. I totally agree. Well put, David. And and I think this is actually back to what what part of our lives does music play? Is music there to remind us of that connection, or is it there to remind us to have a good time? And there's a lot of people saying there's nothing wrong with having a good time. You know, uplifting and and you know what's wrong with these subjects of love and dancing all night and you know and and this kind of thing and that's just not where I'm coming from. There's plenty of people who do come from that direction. Go for it. I, you know, break a leg. It's, you know, it, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with having that music in our world, but in in such quantity. So, I, I still try to. It's a bit different with Johnny Hates Jazz because Johnny Hates Jazz was a pre-existing thing. It's easier when I'm dealing with me on my own. To try and bring that sense of connection with Mother Nature and the temporalness of life into what I do musically. And and that is what I strive to do, Um, all in the context of the format of songs. Um, Yes. I don't make New Age music, but I, I do think that it's important that somehow the beauty and power and remarkableness of life on earth is is you try and reflect it somehow in what you do that's what i think well
0: absolutely i mean going back to that sort of period of the 90s because there was a lot of kind of bands like the afro 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 Celts. i mean which were bringing in you know and 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 the 90s everyone seemed to be playing a didgeridoo and sort of getting into such more much more sort of i suppose um African drumming and stuff like that did that did that sort of kind of also was that quite new for you at that stage in your life or had you sort of come across a lot of those kind of influences before
1: no I think in the in the 90s is when I that's when I picked up a bazooki. that's when I got myself a djembe everyone and their dog had a djembe back then especially at Bath Um, oh god yeah the drum camps Jesus yes yeah I ran a drum camp I, I I ran drum drumming evenings in a local church in Bath. No one knew who I was. That was what was very cool about it. Yeah. I was very, very low key. And then why why should they? It's not, I mean, I walked into there thinking, hey, they don't know who I am. <laughs> they didn't matter. They it was, it was, you know, it was we were there to do something totally different. And and in a way, it was you could say it was naive. Um, but in another way, I kind of feel rather sad that that's fallen by the wayside. You know, now we're all obsessed with how we look and how many selfies we take on, you know, going to the local grocers and posting them online. And that's kind of taken the place of young people who are really trying to find their place in their particular homeland and also their relationship with this particular planet through these different explorations and and in a way it, there was some there was something quite magical about it
0: yes well absolutely because actually the 90s was when i used to go to these 10 day camps you know which were you know just I mean, I I took a lot of photographs and, you know, which I'm pleased about. But thank God people didn't have social media and and no one else took cameras because it was kind of looking back, you know, it's all fine. You know, it it was absolutely fine. But there was a lot of kind of like tribal dancing. There was a lot of people, especially the Five Rhythms gang, who were always, you know, getting very naked half the time and just running around and dancing and falling around. And, you know, it all seemed very enjoyable you know it was very innocent and quite playful and like you said everyone bought a jimby drum and actually i often wonder you know in people's cupboards there must just be that drum that they they probably stopped playing in about 1997 and has never been out since as as well as their kind of slightly misguided Purchase of a teepee, which is kind of not the most practical thing to try and take down the road and put up. But, um, you know, people did it because it was of its time. And, you know, it was it was kind of I think it was just great, you know, and it is it is quite nice to remember that we did all those things um, for a very sort of focused period. But again, you know, what was interesting, it, it happened then probably all over the country in such an intense way and then it does kind of scenes do change but you think well luckily I did have that moment and those memories and it's great that you know we gave it a go so it's good that's all I say. I
1: agree I agree David it was very good it was very good and I really I hope it I hope that somehow you know really we were what we were looking for was ceremony Oh God, you, yes, ceremony. We loved ceremony. We were we were looking for ceremony because we didn't find it in we didn't find a connection with what passed for ceremony in in the church. And and I'm I'm really saying that not to this the Church of England now, because I think there are some really lovely people in the Church of England who are doing their best. You know, it's not it's there's no right or wrong here, but I just don't I think we were. Lose it was, it, it had an inability to communicate with a lot of us about the fact that, you know, we were, we were in dire risk of losing our means of survival, which was the, the planet's ability to support life. Yeah. And so, this idea of ceremony was just, well, you know, it, the, the answer didn't seem to be watching Jonathan Porritt talk about, you know, what governmental policies the Green Party would introduce in order to change the course of humanity, even though that was absolutely a part of it, there was a sense of, well, there was something more that was needed. And uh, and I think that's what we were, that's why ceremony becomes, became such an, an important thing. How do we achieve that connection? Yes. And um, I don't know, is it still happening? I hope so, because I, I actually think, there's something quite beautiful about it.
0: Yes, I hope so. I hope somewhere somebody's going to be doing a sweat lodge on this winter solstice like we did and just go, oh, yes, that's and and still go, oh, actually, yeah, it's good. It's good to get your knees dirty, isn't it, and crawl into a bender. <laughs> we all loved it. You know, I couldn't do it now, but um, it was great. I, yeah, anyway, look, this has been great. I mean, just just lastly, I mean, you've got your... Well, two things. You've got this kind of event that's happening, I think, in a couple of months' time now, probably, in a sort of... Is it a cruise on the on the um,
1: a ship? Yes, it is, yes. Yes, it's an interesting one, that. I mean, um, it's not something really that I, I'm going to talk too much about. But, yes, we are doing it. Never done anything like that before. It's a one-off. It's a one-off. You might you have... Know, We'll give it a go.
0: It, it, it's fine. And then do you have, what other plans have you got after the, you know, as we turn another year um, for next year? Because obviously you've done a tour and that must, you know. Have...
1: Yeah, there's two things really. You know, Johnny Hayes-Jazz needs to tour. So um, we're already getting dates together for next year. And, you know, we'll we'll reveal those dates soon. Um, and we're looking forward to it. We had such a blast performing um with level forty two recently you know we just it it, it ended too quickly we just and, and we really really loved it, and I think people responded very well to us so for Johnny hates jazz that's going to be the focus is is touring for me personally, as I mentioned earlier, I was doing these live streams called Journey songs, which became pretty popular and you know they were they lasted for about an an hour an episode, and I would talk about um one song i'd written and um i'd explain the philosophy behind it what was happening in my life my perspective on the world as to why i wrote it and then i perform it acoustically um and from that an album is coming out of material i recorded in the first half of the 90s and it's called journey songs one right so that's coming out in january then the journey songs live stream recommences in spring and an album from that will come out called Journey Songs 2, which is the music that I made at Real World and in Arizona, which is this kind of, this music which is, you know, quite spiritual, very environmental. And, um, and so I've got this kind of dual focus of things happening around that. So it's going to be a really active year, very God busy is. Yeah, it's very,
0: it's good. I mean, if there was one thing you could have said to your 16-year-old self with after all these decades of experience and and growth and wisdom, is there anything you would have kind of just wanted to have whispered in their ear and said, oh, I would just think that or focus on that or, you know, concentrate? Yeah, Yeah, I just wondered if it was anything
1: particular. I think, well, the word is think. I would have said to myself, think before you do. And you know, I, I made very rash decisions. For example, leaving Johnny H Jazz when I did, number two in the U.S. When I announced to the band I was leaving, I think I would have said, "Calm down, don't worry so much. Just focus on making the best music you can, and your time will come when you can do your own thing and focus more on what you want to do and what you want to say." Um, but i think that's a fundamental thing it's it's to be very thoughtful before i made my decisions
0: yes there you go well that's good that's good advice but
1: look well thank you ever
0: so much for this it's been fascinating completely different to what i expected actually
1: um <laughs> it's been great to talk to you david i love the fact that you you know you and i have this commonality of our 90s experience believe me i didn't say i didn't respond to everything you were saying but i was nodding very quietly <laughs> to myself <laughs> cool, yes
0: it, it's great oh look thank you and uh yes just all the best i'm really you know excited with all the projects you've got because let's face it it's it's all about the next day isn't it and uh what we do you know for the rest of our lives so um absolutely yeah.
1: David. and let, let me know when you get a chance uh, let me know when this is going to go live
0: yes absolutely i will I'll, I'll send you a link as well okay look have a lovely evening and um all the best for the the merry midwinter so um yeah Thanks. take care
1: see you later Thanks a lot, man. cheers bye bye Bye-bye. bye
0: and that was me in conversation with clark datchler to find out more about his life in music and life in general anyway this has been david easel the c86 show if you want to contact me you can facebook twitter instagram c86 show keep it positive also all these have been archived interviews, chats, whatever you like to call them. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just do C86 show. They're all there and more. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.